everyone and welcome back to the 16 millimeter film crew i'm cindy and i'm dale you can watch us on youtube you can like and comment on our youtube videos and subscribe to our youtube channel you can support us on anchor you can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16 millimeter film crew podcasts leave us a rate and review and visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com so this week we watched and reviewed a thousand and one here's your synopsis unapologetic and free-spirited inez kidnaps her six-year-old son terry from the foster care system they set out to reclaim their sense of home identity and stability in a rapidly changing new york city this movie stars tiana taylor and it is directed by av rockwell it also had its world premiere at the sundance film festival this year so Dale, tell us how you felt about this. Um, I thought it was actually a, a very moving picture. Um, very surprised by uh, Leanne Waithe. You know, people have issues with her working, kind of how it usually comes off in a way. Um, blown away, short review, blown away by um, Tiana Taylor's performance. And I'm also blown away by the um, the performances by her younger co-stars, um, particularly um, Aaron Kingsley. Um, Odala, who played uh, her son Terry when he was like six years old. Um, but yeah, also like I'm blown away by um those two performances in this film. Yeah, this this was an interesting watch for me. I felt like there was a lot there that I really liked, and then there were some things that I thought mm, were a little a little bit shaky. Um, but I do think that whenever a movie is set in New York. Um, it always, for me, feels personal just because that's where I'm from. So all of it felt like the textures and like of the city just felt very like vivid and real for me. Like I remember days after high school, like walking around 125th Street, like being in Harlem because my friends were lived in Harlem were from there. So spending so much time there, I don't know. It felt very. Um, reminiscent of like what yeah and authentic of like what my experience was like being a teenager there and just because of that I have kind of a soft spot for this film because whenever I watch a movie that makes that reminds me of like my young like my childhood or my adolescence um it always feels like especially nice because of that so even though I have like certain issues with the movie, I do like it. <laughs> I do like it. Yeah, that's my general statement. I liked it. <laughs> yeah, this I I love this um vein of you know Richard Linklater boyhood esque movies. You know, this is not this is not the the first one in that realm. You know, Linklater does a lot of those anthology style films where it's years in life. It it this is in the same vein as Moonlight. Um, with a uh, thousand cuts, but the, the way this movie transitions from the experiences of Inez as, you know, a single mother, you know, dealing with the issues of the issues in her personal experiences with the foster care system and those struggles and transitioning from herself to adulthood and then a wanting her better life for her son until the twist comes at the end um and then it transitions more so to the young man as he's growing up and maturing and him finding you know first it's kind of adversarial but him developing a father figure you know that relationship and that bond and how it transitions after that 
Um, usually with these movies, you only get either the experiences of the parent or the child. In a way, so it's good to see in a picture like this, you got, we kind of got both. You saw growth through both of them and maturity, in a way. Mm. How did you feel about the twist? Um, the twist, it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword. It's one of those, uh, bad thing with good intentions, but it also, so also showcases the key problem that Inez never really changed while well, she tried to change as she grew up, is that she doesn't really think about the consequences of her actions in the midst of them. Um, you know, she's talking about, you know, she in the beginning of the movie, she doesn't have a place to stay. They leave the shelter, and she's like, she goes to stay with her friend. She gets in a fight with her friend, her friend's mother. Instead of just mm -hmm. swallowing her pride for a bit and understanding, like, oh, I have, to, I have nowhere to go. I need to. I'm trying to survive. I'm, it's not just me. I'm responsible for. It's also this young boy. Instead of swallowing my pride, and 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 not understanding that that woman is making that statement because she herself is a mother, and she's saying that statement for you to mature because you have a child that you're responsible for. She just instantaneously lashed out. You know, pushing um. Uh, Terry as he's growing up, you know, forcing me to school as all parents do, but you know, she was doing it in such an aggressive way where, you know, um, the boyfriend slash husband, I forgot his name, um, Lucky, Lucky. was like, yeah. it's not what you're saying, it's how you're saying it, you know, like, parents do push their kids, but you're just hitting him over the head and not being aware of your consequences, that like you're driving him further away. You know, and then Lucky gets cancer, and then you see that this, the divide between Inez and um Terry show up once again because Lucky has cancer, and Lucky was the one who was you know dealing with um Terry uh, Terry the most. So her saying that she found the child abandoned and felt sorry, wanted to take care of it, is is one of the things that I'm like, I understand the sympathy element of it, but you yourself aren't settled either. You know, that's that's the thing. That's and I and I think, and that's the selfish part that I didn't um like at all. Yeah, it's that. It's like you can't take care of yourself, yeah. like to be trying to take care of some other child. But it's interesting because, like, when I read the description of this movie, it says that she adopts a boy, and then. In another description, it says that that's her son. So when I went into watching it, I was like, so is he her kid or not? And then when it gets revealed that, like, no, he's not. He's just, like, a kid that was on the street that she found. I was like, okay, why couldn't you just tell him that? Like, I don't know. I guess my questions were, like, you're going around, like, trying to, you know get fake papers and documents for him and stuff like that and like not telling him anything about his life so he's even like more confused <laughs> and you could have just been honest with him like you were at the group home I cared about you so I took you so even though yes I'm not your biological mother I'm still your parent because I raised you and I feel like that would have been okay if she would have just told him early enough but like her, like, not doing, her not telling him, I feel like also kind of screwed him up a little bit because 
you know, he doesn't, he can't like get a job or he can't even like go to college or something like that because of the scheme that she was running. So it was just weird that like she didn't tell him. But I don't know. I guess she had her reasons, but I don't understand what their reasons were (laughs) necessarily. Like, I don't think he would have left. Like, if you told him when he was a a really young child, I think it would have still been fine. Is that just my ignorance? I don't know. And and the thing is, I guess me the most, it's clear that I think the she was really from from Brooklyn, if I'm correct. Um, it's clear that the adults in the area were kind of aware-ish, especially to show that that wasn't her child. Especially mm. on the fact that the per the people she's asking for, you know, where is he? How is he doing? He's not speaking to the you know the foster mother, not speaking to that person. He's asking the little kids. Where's Lucky? Mm-hmm. Oh, don't let anybody know I'm t- asking about where he is. Those kind of things. You know, because she... The reveal at the end is that she was actually low-key wanted for, you know, kidnapping him at a young age. And I don't know how, you know, Empire PD glossed that until this man is, like, 18 years old. How that was never, you know, uh, uh, discovered. And beyond that, knowing... um, Because moving from New York... You know, moving to Miami, moving to Atlanta, every step of the way, if I'm, whether, no matter what grade I was, even transferring schools within states, like, they're asking for social security, all that, and that stuff's being ran, to a point where, when I, when I was in, like, middle school in, like, Florida, like, every parent does to get their kid a good education at the better school, we use my grandmother's address, one day I get called to the office, and they were like, what's your, you know, real, what's your address? And I gave them my grandma's address. That's the one. Parents like, if anybody at school acts, you know, this is, and my parents were doing it maliciously, but they just wanted me, that's the school they wanted me in. And everybody does that. Nothing wrong with it. And then the school was like, okay. And they handed me a letter and they were like, make sure your parents get this letter. Gave my parents the parents letter. Turned out school had found out. That, that's not our real address. Even though my dad but my grandmother's apartment was in my dad's name so technically it was our address mm-hmm. they knew that wasn't my our real residence school find out so and that's a middle school so how from elementary school all the way to you know about to graduate become a senior going to like technical high school that that information is not disseminated and discovered especially when you're saying this person has went from i can understand if he's they also said he missed a year of school as well as a kid. So that means when she pulled him out from the... She kidnaps him once again from a foster care system in the school he's going to. She they leave, go to Queens, and she fakes this information. They're not concerned about, oh, where is this gap in his education for the year? Like, that's one of the things I cannot process knowing how the system was for me it makes no sense how what this long of this movie that's one of the that's that's one of the few weird issues i have with the movie so sorry for my rant yeah, there a but little, a little plot hole there no yeah it's true because it's like he this would have already been found out much earlier than when we're discovering it in the timeline of this film so i was just like because i was wondering i was like is this movie based on a real story but it's not so it's like okay well then that makes sense like they probably weren't thinking about it that deeply because it's like because if it was someone's real life i feel like you would be able to get the answers for that yeah but since it's not 
it's like, okay, well, <laughs> that's why that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I felt I I felt like the movie really started to pick up for me when we were focusing on Terry, like as he was growing up. So yeah. like, by the time he was like thirteen or whatever, that's when I got invested in the story. I felt like the first part where they're setting up Inez and like you're you're seeing her trying to like take care of this young kid. I wasn't really like pulled into it, and I think it's because I think Tiana Taylor did like the best she could. I don't know if she's like an actress in that way of like she's done many roles. I know she's been in other stuff. Yeah. But the performance to me was a little shaky. Uh, I wasn't like, I wasn't fully, not that I wasn't fully wanting, because I like, I'm sure that there are women who are like this. So, and I've seen women like this in other stuff. So it was giving like Monique and Precious like a little bit, like it was giving a little bit of that. So like, it's not like I haven't seen like this type of, woman on screen before it's just that like i don't know i wasn't completely there were moments where she was like hitting the notes like she was actually like getting it and then there were moments that she wasn't so it was a little inconsistent for me the performance of her so when we moved away from her a little bit and got into the other young actors i felt a little bit more drawn in also the story was just a little bit more compelling like there is this young kid who's growing up in like some in an underserved community um and he's trying to make it out right by not necessarily by his own will by his mother's will but he has the intelligence and his someone's investing in him so like he that story seemed more interesting to me even though i've seen it over and over again but like i was invested during that portion i think it is important to show both of them because again like you said you only in these type of films, you only see, like, one or the other. But I do think that Terry's story was just a little bit more interesting than Inez, mostly because they didn't, like, expound more on her background. Like, she gave a little hint, like, oh, like, where are your parents? They're gone. I think they're alluding to, like, maybe the crack epidemic, and is that why they're dead? Or, like, are they dead? Or are they in jail? We don't know. Yeah. I think that's what they were trying to say, based on the timeline of like where we start with her, but I don't know. And again, because she's not a very forthcoming character, like she doesn't talk a lot in terms of like what she's feeling and like all that other stuff. I think she's more of an internal character. So I do, I wasn't like getting much from her. So Harry's there was a lot more interesting to me. Cause I was like, okay, like, is he going to make it out? Cause we know he don't got no real dog document so like will he make it out of the hood <laughs> i don't know so i was interested to see that i also thought what was interesting was how they kept kind of telling the story the story of inez and terry juxtaposed with what was going on in new york at the time in terms of the mayors and you know the frisking laws and all that other stuff that was happening during you know the 90s and the early 2000s i thought that was really interesting that's what really gave this a more broader like scope in terms of like the actual film because they were making it general but also making it specific so i felt like them talking about like the structural changes that was happening in the city at the time and how that was directly affecting terry and enos's life 
um, was really interesting. And you can see the effects of that even today. Like if you go into those neighborhoods, um, it's completely gentrified. Like I was literally in Brooklyn the other day and it, <laughs> it's changed remarkably. So yeah, um, I thought that was really good. That's the parts that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed them in like weaving together the history of what was happening at the time with this personal story. Uh, I thought that was very well executed. Yeah, it's you. You like that? That when you touched the last part, you touched on where it's their um family life and their um housing and stuff is reflected through the changes in New York. So I thought that was it. It brought those issues more to the surface because very few people have ever experienced, you know, gentrification like. Like, we put, like, black people, black culture in a monolith, but not every single black American has dealt with gentrification. You know, like, I could say, yes, I lived in, you know, Miami, you know, I live in Atlanta, but the part of Atlanta I live in is, like, more suburban, not associated with gentrification. Part of Miami I lived in was mostly, like, apartments. No, it was, like, I wasn't dealing, I wasn't living in, like, um, uh, Carroll City or Miami Gardens specifically, you know, so I didn't really, I wasn't really familiar with the idea of gentrification. My housing has always kind of been stable, so it's it's a weird thing to process, understand. I've I've had that experience now. That I've gotten older, and I'm aware of it. Like driving through Atlanta now, I've been only in Atlanta for like 15, 16 ish years, but the short time. I can still consider it a short time. The short time I've lived here, I can see the changes this city has brought. And I'll I'll talk to my friends who are actually born and raised Atlanta, and I'm like, I haven't been here long, but if I can notice these changes, how much do you living here actually can notice these changes? Much more impactful. Um, and I saw an instant like that. Um, the new um landlord knocked on the door and walked in the house. The first thing that popped up, I said, he's going to pull a scam to try and force her out of the apartment. And then, you know, know, that was a real thing. I know. Oh my God. Because it's, it's, it's documented. There are like housing cases where, you know, landlords have released, you know, bed bugs and stuff into people's houses to get them to move and stuff like that. You know, like the moment I saw like, oh, I can fix that in the kitchen. I knew it was going to be a bigger thing. And the moment he, he, he keyed on, oh, these cabinets are 20 years old. He was already thinking full renovation, get these people out who've been here for like the past, you know, 15 years so he can make a quick buck. Because he was like, he wasn't willing to work with it at all. He was like, yeah, you're going to have to leave for like a couple months so I can do this. And she's like, but what do I do? I have a kid. I got no stove, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, you can just move out if you want to. You know, either either use to deal with these issues. I'm going to make your living situation so inhospitable. In in you leave or you stay and I raise your rent, you know? So it's, it's a real tough and hard thing to um, witness. And I, and I like the fact they juxtapose, not just the time period changes by date and visually with their clothes, but by what the mayor mirrors are saying. Cause even though I left New York when I was six years old, majority of my family still lives in New York. So I'm familiar with, you know, Rudy Giuliani, his, you know, cleaning up the city rhetoric, which, you know, has escalated right now. It's the way the NYPD functions now. Um, Michael Bloomberg's rhetoric, you know, so I'm familiar with it. So those societal changes 
in those mayor statements were wonderfully reflected in what was going on in their personal lives as well. Yeah, and you can just see, and that's what I really loved about this movie was that like you can hear it being, you can hear the history of it, and then see the fictionalized version of like what the reality would be for people living in those situations. Um, and that's really. That's really terrible because it's just like it always this is this is to do with the film, but it's also just like a rant. It always is interesting to me that like when people come in who are in leadership who want to change stuff, it's never like really trying to help anyone out. It's more like let's crack down on this stuff and let's clean up the city. Let's increased policing like it's never like let's look at the structural like issues that have led to this happening and let's see how we can help the citizens of the city live easier lives it's never about that that's never the rhetoric it's always just like more police more laws more you know let's just lock everyone up and if you can't afford to be here then get out and it's just it's sucks because it's like, well, what happens to these folks? Like, where do they go? And the, and the, I think what we've understood, at least if, if you haven't grown up in the situation, what you've understood through watching these things in films or on the news or whatever, it's always like you have to leave the, the city in order to gain any type of like autonomy, good life, you know? It's like get into the right schools, meet the right people, just elevate your life so you don't have to live in these circumstances and circumstances anymore. And I think what's interesting about this movie is that the love for the city is so important to the people who, who are who live there. Like no one talks no one who's like in the city talks about it in a way that, that they're like, oh, the city's falling apart or like we hate it here it's never that like all the characters that we meet love living in harlem like they like it is their home and they feel very strongly about it and i liked that depiction of it it's not like oh i can't wait to get up out of here it's always like no this is this is my home and i love it and i really want to stay um even what terry says at the end when he's having the conversation with inez when he's like okay so like where is home like if i leave where am I coming back to? And I really appreciated that perspective because it's because I think what we hear and what we see is always like, well, just go, like go to the suburbs, go get like a better life somewhere else instead of like cherishing the home that you grew up in and seeing the value in that. Um, and I like that they presented it that way. I thought that was a I haven't seen that too many times in stories like this where the appreciation for the city is very much on display. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can, like, and that's one of the things I can relate to the most, like, at the end where you said, like, even he's progressing through high school, even though he transfers high schools, goes to the, the tech high school, they're like, uh, show them what um, Harlem's about. Like, don't forget who you are. Like, let them, you got, you're, you're representing for our people. And it always reminds me of the typical immigrant experience, you know, you know, like, I've always been drilled into my head as a child. My mother is like, you got to look a certain way. You got to dress a certain way because you're representing me. You're representing your family when you go out. And that's also 
the idea I thought, even though, you know, Harlem, we're all, we're all New Yorkers, you know, we're all black or whatever. You got to know you're from Harlem, that you're one of us. You got to represent us well. And and him being lost out of home is something I felt really deep, deeply, you know, because like I said, moving around as a kid, like when after like high school, like after like, like leaving Oakwood and stuff like that, I was like mentally, I was like what's next because in my head for some reason i had a ticking clock of all right you've never lived in one place more than like six to ten years almost and at, at my point I, I was like oh i've been in atlanta like nine what's my next step like i've never i've never had a place where i could say this is home ever and it's not until i've gone older where i've like i've said no nah, atlanta is this is it this is home even though i didn't grow up here i've i found a place where i can say this is like home like it's just still weird when people actually say where do you live i will say atlanta people ask me where i'm from i will say miami so it's still that thing is there but the fact that when people say where i live i can say i live in atlanta is is comforting me in a way because at least i know mentally and emotionally i am settled i have a a place like no matter where i go in the world i can come back and say oh atlanta is is my home even though i'm not you know 100 from here i'm happy i i can say and i think everybody needs that especially in the situation he is you know we've known um through the years like how arduous and how difficult the foster care system is and it's and it's beyond and it's it's beyond a lot of stuff like not not even having you know your biological parents but not having a, a grounded center like that does a lot for people like i've known personally like uh a lot i know some women who um are do foster care for people for a lot of these kids and i can i could see even with them as they've transitioned gotten older you know they've been adopted by some of these ladies and the fact they do have a, a like the first couple years of them being in the environment was always rough because they were not settled but as they got older and they, and you know these women did adopt these these uh, young children, you can see that they become more grounded because they know that they have a safe and secure place, and that's really at the core of it. It's not even just having a phone; it's knowing and being aware you're you're secure. So for him to say, for her to go and say, "You're not my biological son. I don't know whose kid you are. I don't know nothing about you. Who your real parents are?" That his world at this point is shattered at the point where he's entering adulthood. And that's like the worst part is when we force somebody's world to be like rocked. Yeah, that's why I wish she would have told him, which makes me feel a feelings about her as a character. Just because I'm like, this young man is like completely lost because you haven't said anything. Like you're not telling him anything about himself. Like. How is he supposed to move into the world confidently if he doesn't know who he is? And in large part because of you, which I don't like. Like, so I'm very happy that we had a character like Lucky. Because to me, Lucky was like the only person who really, not only, because the guidance counselor at the school or whatever also invested in him. But Lucky was really there to be like, nah, like, I love you. And like, you're, I want you to do better things than me and your mom, fake mom, whatever. Like, he really poured into him. He really spent time with him. Like, that's what he needed. Like, I feel like if that wasn't there, I have no clue where Terry would be. And that's a, that's a story for a lot of young black 
men. Like, especially growing up in th- in those kind of situations, it's like you don't have anyone to like really take care of you in the sense of like giving you some type of identity self-worth like building that like you need that every kid needs that but especially for young black men because the world is really dangerous for them like as you saw in in the movie he was getting stopped by the police and he was like so young so just imagining like the opportunities of you know going to good schools and stuff are great yeah but let's just say that he didn't have that intellect to do that. Like, what happens to all the other Black boys who don't have those type of opportunities, who don't have that, like, innate gift to, like, acquire knowledge and to study and to do stuff like that? Like, what happens to those kids? They still need to be looked after, still need to be invested in. Like, so... I... I kind of wish that they didn't... There's a part of me that wishes that that wasn't the narrative. Because we've seen that a lot where it's just like, well, just you know, if you're smart enough, you'll be able to get out. But my question is like, okay, well then what happens to everybody else? Like who doesn't do that? You know, do their stories get told because they're not gifted in that way? Cause to me, every child is gifted. It's just, that just might not be their thing. So it's like, I kind of wish they took that direction toward towards it. I didn't even think about that until just now, but <laughs> I do kind of wish that that happened. But regardless, this is the story we got. So, yeah, I just I like that Lucky was there for him. I was really sad when he was passing away because I was like, damn, like there isn't anyone that's going to be able to do that to do that for him anymore. And now he's like 18 and legally able to just like be on his own. Like what is it seems like he has a hard time, like making decisions. Like, what is he going to do? And the story doesn't really tell us anything. It leaves us kind of. It leaves a very ambiguous ending for us. So, yeah, I'm, I'm like Lucky is the character we kind of all applaud and aspire to, I guess, in the story. Um, I thought it was a wonderful depiction of you know black fatherhood because you know, and let's be honest, we're gonna be honest. There are depictions of positive black fathers, but socially. Black men do get a bad rap of, you know, being a bad... Like, if you look statistically, black men are with their kids, taking care of the kids, economically more than other races. You know, the data is there. Um, but we still get the bad rap of, oh, black men abandon their children. Um, and for me, Lucky Lucky's involvement goes beyond that. Because even, even beyond black fatherhood, every boy needs male role models even beyond the ones I was like, yeah, I have a two-parent hostel, you know, my mom and dad are both here, but for me, I'm the oldest son, only boy, and I was still looking for outside influences to emulate, whether it was, you know, in Miami with my older cousins, or when I moved here, you know, there are people in the, there are, I'm at the age I'm at now, there are guys in the church at the at that age that I, you know, I latched on to. You know, and took them as, you know, surrogate older brothers. So every, no matter your social or home life, you always need those figures. Um, And the only, the one of the disheartening things, which is, I don't know if I can respond to this or address this as, um, as a man or a black man, is when Inez says, or her and um, um, Terry get an argument, and 
she says, oh, you don't care about me. It seems like nobody cares about black, about black women. Even black women don't care about each other as well. And that's another thing I kind of, I see online a lot where, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as an outsider where I see, you know, black women like being catty and spiteful and vindictive to each other. But in the movie, it does show a different example of that because first issue, um, her friend's her friend Kim, Kim's mom, you know, she might have berated her, but the liberation came from a good place, trying to get her to get her shit together to raise for a kid. That's a black woman caring for another black woman. You know, when she goes into the house, the first the first room she's renting with um with Terry, the older lady is like, Where are your people? And she went in without saying anything, she understood. And she was like, Here, stay here, rent here. Most likely also renting at a lower rate. Let's be honest. Right. And then it's also telling her, oh, here's this job that they're hiring for in Queens. And the moment Inez is like, but that's too far. She's like, you got to do something like that, that. Those are black women caring for another black woman. So it's kind of like a, a two edged. I felt that statement was like a really untruthful statement in the situation. Because, yes, like black fatherhood, there are depictions of black women not caring for black women. But they're also swaths of um representation of black women caring for black women immensely a lot like perfect example with everything that's going on megan marco and everybody found out megan marco was black it's like we everybody opened up their arms her you know that kind of thing when she started recognizing oh this is the black experience where everybody was like oh we are going to support you 100 you know no matter what is that kind of thing so to say that black women don't support black women i don't i don't feel like it was a fair or a justified statement that needed to be included in this story, I guess. I don't know, that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think she said, yeah. well, no one looks out for black women except for black women, and even then. Yeah. So I think she was making a caveat. Like, yeah. even sometimes that's not true. Yeah. And... I'm not going to say that she's wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think that... Oh, I don't know. It, it's complicated. I feel yeah, like... No, yeah. There, yeah. There there are Black women who will hold you down for sure. I think that's just like the Black community in general. I feel like we don't always treat our own well. Um, but if anyone else tries to come up against us, then that's yeah. when we will put on that front. But... That doesn't, that's still not great. That's still not good because um, you can hurt your own just as worse as someone from the outside can mm -hmm. if you're not being careful, you know? So, and and the example that you brought up about Meghan Markle, I feel like this is, I feel like there on one hand, there were a lot of black people who were like, yes, we, we will embrace you mm. because you are black. But then you have people like Whoopi Goldberg who, is completely and always out like outspoken about her mistrust, her dislike of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Yeah. So it's like sometimes it really just be your own people. Like that is true. Yeah. <laughs> it hurts, but like it's true. Sometimes it really be your people. Um, and there's a part in the movie where she's like watching TV where someone's like, Well, yeah. no one's gonna look out for you except for you. Yeah. And although I understand that. I don't agree with it. I feel like that's the type of, I don't know, when you move through the 
through your life like that, I don't think that you live a, a good life. I feel like you can't go around just mistrusting people all the time, closing yourself off to people all the time, being like, well, nobody got me except for me. I just feel like you're not living a full life if you just, if that's how you choose to see the world. I feel like at some point you have to be open to be vulnerable with other people, make connections, make friends. Like, yes, there's risks attached to that, but I don't think that you're living your fullest life if you don't do that. And I'm speaking to myself too. Like yeah. I, I sometimes very much feel that way, but um, I don't think that it's healthy or like just well for anyone to move through life like that. And I don't see someone, and this is another thing about um, the depiction of mothers and sons who have very close connections that I've noticed in the last couple of years. Where it's like the the idea of your child growing up and becoming their own person feels like an assault to you as a as a parent. <laughs> like they're leaving you. They don't care about you. And I don't understand that at all because isn't that the point? Like you train your child up and then they go. Yeah. And they get to be their own person and you know you did a good job. Like I think that's the point of parenting, not to just have this weird codependent relationship where it's like, you are my everything. And if you dare to age and like live your own life, then you don't love me. I do not like that at all. <laughs> so I don't know. In this movie, it's bringing up stuff and I don't even know how to feel about any of it, to be honest. I can, I can say, uh, first of all, I think that scene where I think she's watching like Ricky Lake or whatever, one of those old 90s-esque, early 2000s talk shows, and the girl's talking about, oh, I got my back, and, you know, I burn bridges, but, you know, people don't really care about me. I think that was the first moment where she was like, this is not good. Like, mm -hmm. you see her breaking down and crying while she's by herself. Like, Lucky had just walked out the house, you know, and she's, like, by herself. And then, you know, of course, after that scene, Lucky then has cancer, but there's clear that moment was her first recognizing that there's a problem inherent with me as an individual. Like the Chris Brown thing I said last week, at a certain point, the problem is not everybody else. The problem is you and how you address and how you handle those problems, you know, depend, it influences the outcome. And to your, the other thing about mothers and sons, like this is something I mean, still you know recognizing rick is like i remember like but i've, I've recognized now parent parent and child relationships are always in a constant state of um flux um because my mom would say you know oh i carried you for this long you always you my my baby boy you know because only boy and all that stuff so it's it's different and then I remember for a while, like, I'm going through adolescence, like, high school, you know, even some parts of Oakwood, I was like, yo, I'm sick and tired of you, I don't want nothing to do with you, blah, 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 you know, and that's just, you know, just being angry about not being able to do, you know, what you want to do. And now as an, yeah, as an, growing up. yeah, and now as an adult, mm -hmm. it's like, I'm not going to say your, your, your parent childship is always going to be perfect, because they're always going to see you as your child but there are times where i'm like i'll just call my mom to a room and we'll talk you know like you know how most parents are afraid to cry in front of the kids now my mom is more open and she's willing to open like release and i can release with her like it's more 
and but there are times where if I'm late at downtown before she calls my sister, you know, asking where she is, you know, it's like one o'clock or 11 o'clock or midnight. My mom will call me at like 10 o'clock, like knowing exactly where I am, like at the movie theater, or I'm chilling with my friends downtown that she knows that she's met. She'll go, oh, it's 10 o'clock. I don't want you out late on the streets like this time of night, you know, make sure you get home safely, you know, and then I'll get home and I was like, aren't you asleep? Like, no, I wanted to make sure you're home safe. Like, it's still that there and I've had to like constantly, like, mom, I'm, I'm, I know you're, you're caring for me. She was like, oh, you're a black man in Atlanta. It's also you're like, mom, your daughter is like five foot nothing. Like, it's worse for her. She can get snatched up on the street and it's still like. But it's it's I think it's still a maternal thing, and I think it's also it's stronger with black women based on it's, it's stronger with black women and their sons based on you know the way the world is. You know, of course, turn on TV, anytime you'll see another you know black man you know shot or gunned down, not even by our own people, but also by authority figures, police. So I I think those kind of um societal issues and problems have you know. Uh, reinforce that maternal instinct that black women have for their sons lasting beyond and into adulthood in a way. So. Yep. So. Um, but y'all have it the same yeah. too. Daddy's that Like, there needs to be a movie like this for the daddy's girl perspective because y'all have it the same way too. Actually, no, it's different for you guys. You're able, you guys are able to work your fathers. Like, trust me. I've, I've seen it across many <laughs> levels. Daddy's girls be pulling off the most outlandish stuff in the world where do whatever they want and be mad, hella reckless with, with reckless abandon. Okay? So. I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, <laughs> I have a really weird relationship with my dad, so I can't totally relate, but I can kind of relate a little <laughs> bit, but not fully. Like... Um, but yeah, I do think there should be more movies about like young women, young black women and their dads. I think that would be cool. Yeah. Um so Dale's gonna make that. I, I um, can't 20, I can't uh, write on an experience I'm not familiar with. You're gonna have to write that. Twenty thirty something I don't know. You you have to write that. Like you write what you know, so Yeah. So Um but yeah, in terms of like the other aspects of this movie, I thought the music was great. Um, the fashion seemed accurate. I liked, I don't know if they had like, well, the production design of the apartment, I think, was pretty good as well to just reflect the situation. The editing was interesting. It felt like watching a movie from the 90s. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe that's what they were trying to do. So, if that's what they were trying to do, then I see them. <laughs> Um, cause some of the editing courses, I was like, mm. but maybe there, it was a part of the style of the film, the flavor of the film, I guess. That's how I'm going to interpret it. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there are a few visual cues of when this movie is set, like when it transitions through time. But the weird thing is looking now, like, because a lot of those old, like, 90s fashion choices have come back in vogue, like the mm -hmm. bamboo-style earrings, for a while I was like, when is this movie set? Like, I'm trying to, like, process mm -hmm. this, because 90s fashion, to a certain points have come back. And it wasn't until she moves in with um that house, that original room for rent, and she does this lady's hair, I'm like, oh, this is the, this is the early 90s. Because that hairstyle would not be 
done today unless it's a Barner, a Barner Brothers show downtown Atlanta. But, like, so that was, like, the one few things that was, like, where I was trying to figure out in the, like, first couple of minutes of when the movie was set because you really couldn't tell, you know. Oh, you missed the title card. A title card, That's probably. I probably wasn't, like, keying in on it, probably. Oh, okay. But, yeah. So. Yeah. I, I knew it was the 90s when the Twin Towers were still there. I was, like, this is not current day New York, so. True. So, yeah. I think I just mentally, like... Like and that's the thing. Like if you're not from New York, like I remember when the Twin Towers fell, and I, there are people from Miami who were going, who would tell our our family, like, "Oh, we went to New York. It's so nice and lovely," and they would take pictures of the skyline and be like, "Oh, the skyline is so amazing." But even me at like seven, eight years old, I could tell, even living living there for a short time, like even moving leaving new york at six six years old but still going back frequently because family was there i could tell there was something weird about the skyline so i guess when that scene happened i had already mentally like compartmentalized that building's not there anymore in my head when i visually saw it but yeah yeah but yeah i thought it was it was an interesting movie yeah. um it has it, it had it up and down it had some interesting social commentary but overall, I think it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I just I wish it got a better chance in the in the box office, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when Focus Pictures picked it up before its March release, it was released alongside, you know, even though it was a dead period, it was released alongside um Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. It was it was a quasi dead period, but quasi wasn't there. Was still like more heavily promoted pictures that are coming out at the same time so yeah yeah but. yeah i don't want to see any more stories of like black people struggling for a while <laughs> that's my own just personal like i i appreciate these stories i just don't want that because again i feel like it always kind of reinforces a certain type of um view of like what our lives are mm-hmm. So um, I don't, I don't love that all the time. I think those, I think the, there is still space for stories like this, um, but I just, I don't know. It's that's maybe just a personal preference. I, like. I think the issue, I'm not, not seeing it as an issue. I think because a, a lot of people are writing from experience or from what they see, um, and let's be honest, because, and I'll say this, me, like I said before, my parents are like. I like I'm comfortable there are stuff I want that I don't have but I'm not I'm saying I wasn't without as a kid and I've become aware of growing up I did have a safety net in a way where I didn't have to worry and so a lot of these films by a lot of these black directors and black creatives they're those pictures exist because that's what they've come out of you know they're writing about what they know but mm-hmm. the inverse the only other extreme we kind of have is where we're showing already rich established people but they have problems kind of like bel-air like all the rich black people mm-hmm. got come kind of drug problem or whatever you know we have we have to mess them up somehow because they're too perfect and so because they are perfect they overcourse greg and make sure oh every rich black person is a horrible person you know there's there's never been an adequate middle ground depicting the full black experience in cinema so Babes yeah wait and that's waves. funny and that's the thing like I, I was like oh i'm gonna watch waves and i was like no i can't watch waves i'm about to watch this because i know if i watch waves it's gonna probably taint away 
that I kind of view, and even Waves to a degree does hit upon the um the issue of rich black people with you know with problems, you know that kind of thing. Because but they don't think they were rich. I think they it, were just middle class. No, the father owned a construction company. Yeah, he was remember, rich though. But you know that's still you kind of. I mean, to be fair, yeah, but yeah, but. It's still, class. it's still, it's still, if you own a construction company, you're no longer middle class in my book to a degree, so. Really? I mean, no. he's, he was there showing the, the house, like, oh, this house we have here is no, no, construction. No, no, I know that what he was doing, but they ne- they never seemed that they had, like, it was they didn't seem Bel Air. Yeah, okay, yeah, you know so, like, yeah, you're, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. There are, there are, okay, yeah, there are levels too, too rich. Yeah. yeah you're right. But yeah, but I know us. I, I said if I watch Waves, it's probably going to taint my view and experience of this movie a bit, so I kind of avoided watching it. So, yeah. I watched it a few days ago. It's still great. I love it so much. It's simpatico. We thought about watching Waves this so week. Good. <laughs> oh, I wish more people... I need this... I want, like, a re-release for Waves. Like, <laughs> come back out so yeah. people can see. Anyway. So, uh, beyond that, you know, we've covered, you know, you know, um, the performances by the actors. We've talked about, you know, all the societal, social things inherent within the movie. But beyond that, what is your overall takeaway and what you got from this movie and how would, would you recommend it to anybody else to watch? Um, I would recommend it to mm. people. Um, it's, it was good. It. Again, the performances, except for like maybe like old Terry and um, uh, and Lucky, I don't. They were a little meh to me. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't really. It wasn't giving what I wanted it to give, but in terms of like story and like social commentary, I think that there were some interesting things there, and especially if you don't. Like, if you're not from New York, maybe this will be completely new to you. And um, there is a lot of history that I think it's it's specific to New York, but also it's been applied nationwide um, in terms of, like, how leaders in government deal with, you know, issues around the country. It's probably not even just happening here. It's probably, I, it definitely happened in England and I'm sure other countries in Europe. So yeah. I think it's universal in that way. But yeah, I do think it was good. I think there are other movies who who has who have done this story better. Um and we've alluded to those in this conversation. But I still think that this is a worthwhile watch. Like I think it's interesting. So. Yeah. Um yeah no I, I I enjoyed it immensely. Like I said before um, this being Tiana Taylor's, like, I want to say, honestly, this is her, kind of her breakout role, in a way, like, usually yeah. the last couple of years, like, post, you know, I think, of course, if you know Tiana Taylor, you've kind of known her since, like, 2007-ish on My Super Studio 16, and then, you know, trying to start a music career, and then, huh? She was in My Super Studio Yeah, she did, yeah, she did. Yeah, see, wow. so your experience with knowing Tiana Taylor and my experience with knowing Tiana Taylor are two different I uh, know her when she was on good music. Like, yeah, that's see, that's your, your, yeah, that's your introduction. My introduction is like 2006-ish, 2007-ish. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, 
Well, yeah, she was yeah, my Super Series 16. But um, this being her like first breakout lead role is is immense. Like, well done, props to her. Um, especially considering for the most part she's kind of done like bit roles in a way. Um, I think um, I think the other movie before this one was um Coming to America, but she kind of wasn't really prominent that much in this that movie. And before that, it was um another Netflix movie I think called After Party, where she basically plays herself. Um, but other than that, she really doesn't have really substantial roles. Um, like I said before, Aaron Kingsley did an amazing job of Terry at six years old, capturing that that you know that lo- little lost child in those scenes, especially where he's not speaking, or the few times he was interacting with her, that that kind of rage kids have when they don't want to do something. You know, she's kind of fed up where it's like, get the fuck off me, you know, and as a, you know, those kind of moments where children are like, I don't want to do this, and you're that combativeness. I will say to a degree, I did enjoy um, Josiah Cross, his, he's Terry at the end of the movie. I did enjoy his interpretation or his representation, because at that point, Terry is still awkward, still trying to find his place in the world. You know, middle-aged Terry, um, the guy's name is Avon, is, you're at that age, 13, 14, you're cocky. You, you think you have no weekends, so you ha- he kind of has like a swagger. But the younger and older Terry's, I thought that the picture was wonderful. You have a kid whose world has been, you know, thinks his mother's abandoning him and uprooted him from where he knows everybody. And you have an older one who's trying to find his place in the world. He's kind of unsure what he wants, wants to do. So I think they did an um, amazing job with this. So yeah, I would, I would honestly recommend this movie to, for anybody to watch. Um, moving on from that, um, it's, you know, box office time, um, so the big cinematic draw of this time right now is not Super Mario Brothers, finally, or Guardians of the Galaxy, but it's Fast X, um, uh, of course, everybody knows for the last couple years, um, Fast and Furious kind of movies kind of had not hit a decline as far as interest i think it's the same there but the the cinematic draw as far as box office has kind of been waning for a bit um uh but overseas is kind of a a different tale i think it opened to about 70 million um and that's below fast um nine but that was kind of during the early stages of covid um, overseas, though it opened up to two point um two hundred and fifty one million dollars in like about eighty or so markets, and especially in China where it made seventy eight million dollars, which is good. Um, uh, which it they saying it's a positive, even though it being it's almost like fifty percent down from Fast Nine, and that's how much um the draw of the Fast and Furious franchise has gone. Um, but it's also Hollywood's best opening in China for this year. Um, so they are predicting um, it will make a profit because um, this movie apparently was very expensive to um, produce. The budget for the movie was $340 million, and that's before marketing costs. So that's a really expensive movie to make. But because it made about three hundred eighteen in this um, this opening weekend, or this opening, yeah, this opening weekend, 
it most likely further on it will make back the money it spent and turn a profit unlike you know black adam but you know so it's good for vin diesel he has that over on the rock about his movie being um a financial success as far as you know as far as box office goes so that's it for me on the box office front yeah i feel like fast and furious is like the movie everyone loves to hate watch like people will see it knowing that it'll be bad and they love it i mean yeah i've i've stopped after the i think the last fast and furious movie i saw was like hobbs and shaw and that was it mm. and i mm-hmm. and that was like i stopped after like was the movie for that like fast eight i don't even know but i i haven't really watched it the last couple of them so yeah we don't know they'll yeah. be making these movies when until everyone's dead yeah <laughs> okay moving on to some film festival news can is still happening every single day i'm hearing new news from it um in terms of whether it's a movie, the reaction to the movie, the standing ovations, the fashion, it's just like, it's overtaken my life. So we're going to talk about a few things. First thing is Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the Martin Scorsese new new movie that's coming out this fall. Um, it did very well in terms of standing ovations, got a nine minute standing ovation. And during the press conference, uh, Robert De Niro talked about his character who he plays in the movie and compared him to Donald Trump in some way. I guess because the character that he plays, William Hale, was um, betraying the Osage people, which is what the film is about. It's about this, it's almost like a true crime type of movie um, dealing with um, indigenous people back in the 1920s, I think. So, he was comparing the character he played with Trump, and he's been very outspoken about his dislike of Trump. And um, he called him, you know, that stupid man. He didn't name him. He just said Trump was stupid. Well, <laughs> without saying the name, he's a stupid man. Um, and that it's insane that people think that he could do a good job, which is very true. Um, I, I see... All of this feels accurate to me, <laughs> but um, I do think that it's very interesting that this movie is doing, this is like the hottest ticket in terms of like people are really excited about this movie because it took a long time to get made. Like I, I remember when it was in production years ago and like, I was like, okay, cool. When is it coming out? And like, there was no release date. So it took a long time for it to kind of get going. But I think what's wonderful that about what Martin Scorsese did, along with Leonardo DiCaprio and everyone else on the cast, was that, one, Indigenous people are present in the film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They have a huge role in it. Um, And they also consulted the Osage people um, and did a lot of research, talked to them for a long time out of respect for their culture. Like, they weren't just going to come in and make a movie and, like, disregard (laughs) those people's experiences which i think was a very smart move and um just like needed to be done because that has happened a lot in the past where you know you're depicting a certain um event in history but you're not actually consulting anyone involved in those in that moment or you know you'll have this is not like a great comparison but you'll have like a green book situation where you're just going to make the movie anyways and 
we don't care about <laughs> the other co-leads life so i'm very happy that like they took the time to do that and that the osage nation chief was like they restored our trust in like i guess our stories being depicted which i think is great so everyone's really excited about it i can't wait to watch it apparently it's like over three hours so they better cut that down before it gets released that's all that's my criticism <laughs> but yeah <laughs> that sounds like a, a home release experience for me you know? mm -hmm. or you know I have to actually probably plan out a day like to watch a three-hour movie at a movie theater, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, like even props to Robert uh, Robert Neal, but Arm Squares says he got. I think he also had the chief there at Cannes, yeah. and the Cannes was speaking to the press talking about how, you know, they actually had him on set, like you said before, making sure the representation or how the his people were viewed were truthful and also positive, and that's that's something I think Hollywood needs to develop when you're depicting different cultures and races particularly when you're a writer not of that background you need to have right. people on there you could say you know this is how we act this is how we are blah 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 um so yeah um also at cans um another movie that's kind of um at the center a bit of some conversation going on with the cans you know we spoke last week about the people you know talking about roman polanski the um actress her mom Woman of Fire, I, sorry, I forget her name. Um, how they're talking about giving uh, standing ovation to Roman Polanski, issues with you know Johnny Depp being present due to uh, the problems before with um, Amber Heard. Um, Nanny Portman, who's also starring in a movie called May December, which stars Julianne Moore playing December, and um, Charles Mendel, who's playing May. Stories about a couple that kind of fall in love with each other when one of these characters is 13 years old um and um in her interview Natalie Portman is talking about how men and women are expected to look behave and act differently in cans not just I think the conversation goes beyond cans but how we are outside of that like in real life um she goes on to say, when is it, when is age inappropriate? When it's people that are in different places developmentally and when someone's an adult. This is why we have boundaries around that. I think the reason why this movie feels so dangerous watching is that because people don't know where anyone's boundaries are to feel scary. I think her, her viewpoint is true um, because especially now where you have these red pill, these men's rights activists, you know, constantly spouting their, their BS on on. YouTube, Facebook, you know, Twitter, men like Andrew Tate, um, of course, Kevin Samuels was in that same regard, um, where you have them suggesting or proclaiming to men, you know, if you're looking for women, you know, date younger. Like, even today on Twitter, there was a conversation where somebody's, like, saying the positives of men dating 19-year-old women. And his logic is, oh, she's 19, she's adult, but she's also, you know, moldable and malleable. Um, and as a society in a, to a way until recently, we've never really batted an eye with those viewpoints as far as men, but whenever it's a woman doing it, we kind of, you know, go, oh my gosh, how, why is she dating, a, dating a younger man? And I am beyond that when it's the issue with these stories of, uh, when it comes to teachers molesting students, you know, when it's teachers, you know, the man, if a man molests a, a, a girl, he's vilified but you know when it's a woman 
with a with a younger man it goes or young boy it goes oh you know it's kind of like it's okay you know all oh, that that young man he got the riz you know he's smooth and suave even to the point we have rappers like um little boosie saying he's paid women to have sex with his young sons so natalie portman's viewpoint on this is very true and she's also talking about how americans are obsessed with scandal and there is no shortage of material to inspire movies because america has always been fraught with scandal so yeah she she talked about like at candace specifically that yeah. like there's like a dress code where like women have to wear heels to the event and so i remember one year julia roberts took her shoes off and she was like barefoot on the cans carpet and i was like ah oh, such an icon i will always stand julia roberts always but like but i liked that but i think what she's saying is like why are there rules for women but not rules for men like men could come yeah. however they like i mean assumingly they have to wear black tie but you know if they don't it's not really like a statement like jennifer lawrence showed up can yesterday or the day before wearing like flip-flops or something <laughs> so like i don't know i feel like which what, what she was saying was like well whether you're um disrupting that idea of like what a woman should be or you're leaning into it the system is the issue like those social standards of like yeah you have to be this way or that way is the problem and julianne moore was really talking about the movie specifically and how we view these type of situations and i think I'm excited to see this movie really because I think it might do something like Tar did where you're talking like you, we've been talking about cancel culture and, you know, um, misuse of power in regards to men specifically. So I think one way that Tar really broke through was that they flipped the gender. So having a woman be in that type of position and doing these things, it does make you have a I think it makes you look at it in a different way. Like you're more open to receiving the messages because it's not literally following the same things that you've been told over and over or the things that you've seen yeah. for years and years. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see this. I'm actually really interested to see like what this movie is going to be. In. Yeah, but you know, it still sucks that for people to understand how, you know, how the, how power dynamics work or can be pushed into those negative spaces it has to be a woman doing it you know it, it sucks mm -hmm. that that's what it takes to understand how, what you know people using their power and influence to sexually coerce people into doing what they want it has to be oh tar you know a woman doing it it has to be may december where a woman sitting falls in love with a 13 year old a 13 year old man and or boy and then they actually get together and have twins or whatever, but it's it's really sad that it takes women being doing the negative things for people to realize, you know, all oh, these things are bad. But it is yeah, it is what it is. I guess that's the only way can come through. But um, in terms of the last little piece of this pie, the can pie, I was looking at a story about like standing about standing ovations and like what they mean because that's really been in the forefront of the news every time there's been news stories coming out of the fest the film festival it's been like okay this movie got nine minutes or that movie got five minutes or whatever and like there's already like a prejudgment of like well if this movie got this amount of numbers of 
standing out ovations like for this for this long then that means it's really good and if it didn't then that means it's not great but i was reading this article called what makes a standing ovation last 22 minutes at can and basically like right after they finish um screening the movie they, someone has a stopwatch and they'll count but basically the first half of it is that each person in the cast gets like a round of applause so like the director will get one and then the castmates will get one so that it also factors into the standing O. So it's not just like, oh, we are standing because we think this movie is amazing, but it's also out of like etiquette. Like we have to stand and applaud for the people who were in the film that we just watched. Mm-hmm. But the way the actors have been receiving it have been like, oh, we're so happy. And like, it makes us feel so good when people are like standing and cheering for like long amounts of minutes. And that it's kind of tradition that you that these things are taken into account. But that doesn't that that doesn't necessarily mean that the movie is good. So um reviews for Dallas Destiny, which is a new Indiana Jones movie, were mixed, but it had a long situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um it is very interesting. But then you'll have movies like Killer Killers of the Flower Moon. Or Flowers of the Killer Moon? Wait. Killers of the, of the Flower Moon, yeah. Oh, they okay. The person who wrote this article uh, did not get the title of that movie right. Anyways, yeah, for Killers of the Flower Moon, that got nine minutes, but everyone's like, "No, this movie's great." So, like, sometimes it measures up, sometimes it doesn't. Um, the longest one in history was twenty-two minutes, and that was for um, Guillermo del Toro's Pan Lab Labyrinth, which did go on to like win Oscars and stuff like that. So sometimes it makes sense. But I know for this festival and for Venice, like the standing ovations are like a huge part of the reporting of these films. And I was just wondering like, okay, well, does this actually factor in in terms of like, is this movie good? And also some of these movies are, you know, they're there so people can buy them so they can be acquired so they can, you know, be shown. So I wonder if that factored in to people's decisions or if it's just like a traditional thing and it's you know it's for it's for the vibes of can it's like you must stand and clap <laughs> it's like the vibes for venice like the, these things matter in terms of like first impressions but whether it it that it translate to the merit of the film is i guess still to be discovered i don't know it's not clear yeah that that's the whole standing ovation thing is one of those things that goes back to hollywood this is not even just when i when people are saying hollywood i'm thinking i'm talking about america i'm talking about the industry as a whole because it's kansas for the industry as a whole it's one of those things the industry clapping patting themselves in the back you know hey look how great we are look look mm. look, look you know look at you know harrison ford you know it's eight, almost 80 years old but look at him he's still punching nazis and shooting guns let's applaud him Oh, this movie yeah. was this movie was bad, you know. What was it? The last movie with um Olivia Wilde with 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 Harry Styles. Oh, don't worry, darling. Don't worry, darling. Oh, this movie was this movie's bad, but guess what? Still got to clap because it's old timey nineteen six sixties old forties Hollywood. Let's let's applaud. You know, it's ego stroking at it's it's my and like you said, this is not just where these movie a lot of movies that are playing at Cannes have already got their funding and budget, but there are other pictures that are looking for you know to get picked up like we just talked this episode right now is about a thousand and one that movie played at 
Cannes and was still getting at looked Sundance. at at Sundance. Yeah. But that's the purpose of the film festivals. I don't. Yeah. I do think if a movie is screening at Cannes, like your Harrison Ford pictures or whatever, or even I think Mission Impossible is playing at Cannes as well. Those movies should be in the out of competition section. Like you've had the but you already have the the Hollywood budget. You have. I the, think they are. I think I think it is. I'm, yeah. But yeah, but I'm when I say out of competition, I don't I don't mean they shouldn't be received the same kind of standing ovation kind of BS kind of thing. I I think those kind of um those kind of moments should happen naturally, and mm. should be for those films that don't have the big big name actors or whatever or the big draw. You know, it kind of diminishes the I I can certainly honestly change its name from a film festival because it's not really a film festival anymore in a way. You know. So, what do you mean by that? Like I said before, usually, like most film festivals, is usually you know, let's think Tribeca, you know, um, think Sundance. Usually, ta- directors or writers of projects looking to be looking to get picked up to for distribution and stuff like that. That's what I mean, or you know, win awards in the circuit. Like Harrison Ford, this Harrison Ford movie is not looking for any like, oh, we're here entering, you know, this this category of action or whatever that's what i mean you know Kansas is not really uh, to me anymore a film festival in a way it's it's more so giant red carpet i pull up to the the venue in this nice yacht and i hop out and i walk i walk the carpet and stuff like that you know in a way so i think that it's okay to have variety in terms of what you're showcasing so you can have something like Sundance or Telluride, yeah. which is much more smaller and focused on like those really independent films, and you can have bigger film festivals like Venice yeah. or Toronto because that's also a huge one, um, and and can where it's you can have those films that are looking for distribution, but also that are glitzy and also like really nice events to attend. But that does not to me that doesn't translate necessarily to like what will be like nominated for anything exactly because yes you have those movies that will play in those festivals and they'll get traction from that and then you'll see them at the academy awards but then you'll have a movie like everything everywhere all at once that just played in theaters and swept the oscars this year so it's like you never know you know you don't know like how these things work exactly like some there's not like a formula to say like if this goes to venice you will be nominated for an academy award there that's just not true. Like, you know I, okay, like, I should I should clarify. It seems like to me, you know how you usually have the movie premieres. It seems yeah. like Cannes and Venice have just become hey movie premiere, you know that kind of thing. You know, mm. so they're events. They're yeah. big. They're like the Met Gala or something. Yeah, yeah. So and I like it. Well, for people like me, I like it. I like you know. I like a little bit of glamour. I think they're all glamour. I like a little what? glitz. I like a little fashion moment. It's like, who's going to show up? What are they going to wear? How are people going to feel about the movie? And also, it helps me think, like, okay, well, what do I need to look out for? Like, okay. the, there are certain films in here I, I I had never heard of them before. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll check out Monster. Maybe I'll check out Fireball. Like, these things are being talked about. So, let me But that, But that's, that's also my... my difficulty navigating it is also when i hear stories about oh this movie that we knew that has a big time cast got a like a 20 minute standing ovation and that that's all that becomes reported for a while mm. it, it's hard like 
and it's always surface level, like, oh, the movie got a 20-minute setting ovation, like, not anything what the movie's about, nah, nah, it's just, oh, you know, prior to the screen, after the screening of this, audiences applauded, and then there's a picture of, you know, the actor, you know, graciously bowing and stuff like that, and it's pontificating about the movie, not telling me anything, and then I have to, like, search to find out about anything, any other news about all the smaller pictures, that's all I'm saying, is, you know, Kansas become a marketing tool for a lot of the bigger budget films, so... Um, but yeah. So, beyond that, well, it's kind of the same tangent, the way the industry operates. Um, of course, Rider's Strike is continuing on. I think it's entering their, as of recording, um, today, Monday, they're entering their, um, tomorrow will be their 22nd day of strike. Um, and of course, it was announced a little earlier last week that, um, sag which handles the actors, um, prepare. They're beginning contract negotiations June seventh. Um, to lay, to prepare their bargaining and their strike, their current contract or agreement with um the Lions and Motion Picture Television Producers, basically all the producers. Um, ends June third thirtieth. Um, the issues the actors want are kind of more economic fairness, kind of healthcare stuff like that. You know, residuals. Um, AI technology. Um, in the audition process, particularly the one that sticks out the most across both the writers and actors is AI technology. Um, and we've just seen this past weekend of a tech bro making a fake Tesla commercial featuring um, Ryan Reynolds's face. You know, these are concerns actors have going forward because it's not, and it's because it also delves into intellectual property of uh, name and likeness. Beyond, we've seen people voice his concerns with the last couple of Star Wars movies that came out. You have a CGI Carrie Fisher, you CGI, you know, of course, um, Mark Hamill as young Luke, you know, of course, we had a fake CGI Grand Marth Tarkin when the actor who portrayed him has already passed away. Um, so it's those kind of things actors are concerned about. Much like the writers, when these issues were brought up, producers and powers that be said, oh, it's not a big deal, we worry about that later. Um, and Apparently, the um, the Directors Guild might actually be preparing for a strike as well, because it's part of the negotiations with the Writers Guild and um, the producers. Is one of the concerns that the writers have is um, uh, directors being credited for last minute rewrites, and directors don't kind of agree with that, which I find it funny because nowadays in a lot of these pictures, a lot of the directors are also writers. So it's I'm, I'm betting it's the directors who can't write for shit are the ones complaining about this because it also lines their pocket if they get a writing credit um, to a degree. Um, so there, there are conflicts with those two between directors and um, writers. Um, so we might see the director directors preparing to strike as well to counter the, the writer's concerns um and also mostly directors are also end up being producers as well so some of these directors are going to be striking uh, against themselves which is funny um and also uh lassie which is the um which lassie is basically the um International Alliance of Theatrical Stays Employees. Basically, they're your grips, they're gaffers, all those people, um, and makeup and stuff like that. They had, had a strike earlier last year, 
but they have said that they will support the riders union um the riders union is announcing that they're having a mass rally um particularly their east coast all members outside of universal hq um tomorrow and Lassie has said they're in solidarity with with all of them. So Lassie just had their strike, and they might join this strike as well. So if you have three major <laughs> major groups, four major groups involved with the television and filmmaking process, it's gonna be bad <laughs> if if these people's needs aren't met the way they should. And I'm all for it. You know, I'm all for it. You know. People need to be treated better. Particularly the, the issue of, like we said, the biggest issue for all these groups tends to be AI. Um, and the powers that be, like Dave La Dave Laszlo of uh, Warner Bros. Discovery did um, Boston University's, I think, um, mm -hmm. uh, commencement. Instantly got booed with people in the crowd saying, pay your writers. And he tried to fight through his speech, but he took a lot of pauses, hoping that it would die down. Um... And also you have um, Disney is now announcing that they're pulling large portions of their projects again from Disney Plus. So that's, you know, lost media there that people aren't going to be know that, oh, this writer, this actor or this voice actor or this, you know, young up and coming producer or whatever working on this project. Oh, I can't see it because this project doesn't exist. So I don't know. Doesn't look good for these producers and these um ceos of these companies so yeah yeah i when i first was looking into the writer's strike weeks ago um i watched a video by dan merrill who explained all of this and he did bring up basically armageddon which is this scenario where you have major organs of the film and television production organization like completely breaking down because again all of their contracts are up at the, at around the same time so if things go south like if they all decide to strike then there are no more the industry is completely at a standstill like they're not going to be able to do a single thing which i think is the point i think the point is to get them to yield to the demands and meet them um either way whether they end up striking or not we're all going to feel the effects of this current strike with the writers um if not immediately definitely until next year um so the the, the effects have already kind of gone into play but this would be like a worst case scenario situation and i'm sure the studios don't want that to happen so yeah. They better make some decisions. They, have some conversation. There are already attempts to kind of circumvent those issues, particularly those projects that are shot. Like these unions predominantly operate here in the states, mm -hmm. um, but there there are attempts to circumvent them. Um, I think Game of Thrones said they're going to start production for the next season of. Um, uh, oh, they've already started. Yeah, they've already started. And they're not stopping. And they're not stopping. So, yeah. Um, they're people were decrying, saying, "Um, I forgot the actor's name." Uh, dang, why? But they're saying one of the actors is wrong for crossing the lines, not being aware that the whole cast and crew is over there overseas or shooting, trying to circumvent, you know, these things. Uh, 
yeah, it's... And honestly, I'm not mad at it, because I want to see Oscar the Dragon. <laughs> I don't know. Them, like, I, I, like, and that's, and, and, and that's the thing I think people need to understand. These rules only apply to if you're shooting in the States, or if the, the production prom predominantly is American-based. Yeah. So if yeah. your project is not predominantly American-based with all fully American talent, they're, like... Yes, HBO is HBO Warner Brothers is an American owned entity. House of Dragons is a predominantly a majority European cast. They're gonna find a way to circumvent yeah. circumvent these things. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. Um yeah. if you're if your project in your TV is already like most of these shows probably have I think the first season done. So beyond the rewrite phase of shooting, we'll see how that goes. Um of course a lot of the movies coming out in the next two to three about two years are mostly in post-production so kind of can't put a kibosh on that but it's the projects that come out after this uh, one to two year window the quality of them especially when the a lot of these current running shows and their next season it's time to air like air the following season after a strike the quality dropping so yeah yeah does not look good Nope. So. Okay, well, let's talk about what we've watched over this past week, Dale. You know, I got I got hit with a bit of nostalgia for the last couple of days. In the last week, I did watch Power Rangers. Um, this week, I decided to watch the Chip and Dale movie that came out last year, I think. Um, and holy shit, uh, this movie was horrible. Um. Yes, I know it did well, you know, box obviously they won a daytime Emmy for voice acting, but it's a nostalgia-based bait film that doesn't know what it wants to be. There are a lot of meta-references to the state of industry in Hollywood, particularly highlighting, especially they had old Sonic, not old Sonic, but the ugly Sonic, you know, referencing the fact that fans speaking out against portrayal of characters, how that messes stuff up, you know, talking about it's nostalgia baiting in the industry, you know, endless reboots and remakes. Um, but the issue with this movie as its core, it does not know who it's who was who it who it was for. Um and it's very clear in watching it, um, that they don't know they weren't sure if this movie was for kids or was for the parents. Because like I said, all those meta references to stuff only adults would know or references to cam characters and stuff like that or making a kid movie i think hollywood needs to pick and choose you can't make a movie that attracts both parents and kids and because it's, it's literally impossible like at least marvel kind of knows to toe the line like this movie kids like their superhero stuff yeah kids are gonna watch it but it's also something a parent doesn't mind taking their 15-year-old child or their younger siblings to watch. You know, it's it. But once you start getting to that reboot nostalgia area, it becomes kind of difficult. And it's odd that this is from Disney, which a couple years ago, you know, Rick and Ralph and, you know, adults and parents able to watch, you know, of course, uh, what was it? What, Buzz Lightyear, um, Turning Red. Those are movies that parents and children are able to watch. But I feel like this movie just missed the mark completely. So, yeah. Okay, so I watched... I watched this video essay from Vice called How A24 Took Over Hollywood. 
and I watched a vice a vice documentary i thought vice was bankrupt it was it was only like what about 12 minutes <laughs> it's on youtube it's, it wasn't like a real okay. it wasn't a documentary it was a video essay it okay wasn't a documentary. um just about like how a24 started and like how it became so popular how it became as respected as a studio as it is now because you know They've had, you know, multiple Oscar wins and box office success and stuff. And um, it was interesting to hear about the history of this kind of like, it was like an, it was like an in the know kind of situation where like, if you knew, you knew, like if you were a part of the cult of A24, like you knew what it was about. Um, but also because we love it so much and a lot of young people are like obsessed with movies that come from the studio that originally started as just like a distribution thing. And now it actually makes, it produces movies. So that's cool. And just see its transition from being a thing where you would have movies like Spring Breakers, you know, those little, the weird, the weird movies that like you would have to go to an art theater to see to something that had a lot more prestige where you had Moonlight and Lady Bird, you know, movies like that, that were like winning Oscars and, you know, everything everywhere all at once that obviously won a bunch of Oscars, but also did really well in the box office. Um, it was interesting to see that trajectory. That really started from just like word of mouth. People would be like, oh, have you seen this movie? And it would kind of spread from there, but also like the merch and stuff that they've sold which made you feel like more a part of it it's like it's for the film nerds but it's also for like the people who like like that aesthetic of there is a certain aesthetic that is associated with a24 which is why it's as big as it is because it's more like a brand than it is like a studio like yeah no one cares about hbo in the same way like (laughs) To be like, oh, let me get a hoodie from HBO. Like, no one cares about that. Um, but A24 has a certain appeal, like a certain vibe that is connected with people. And I think, and they also make great movies. So, hey. Um, but I watched, the actual thing I watched was <laughs> Normal People, which is a mini series, a limited series um, over on Hulu. It was nominated for a bunch of Emmys and stuff back in like 2020 when it came out and i like didn't really watch it because i wasn't i was like not that interested but i read sally rooney who wrote the book i read her book um conversations with friends and um and then i don't know i got back into her world a little bit and i watched the series and this series is very interesting because it's about young people who are like finding their first love and finding out who they are. And it's pretty explicit in a lot of ways in terms of like nudity and sex. But the interesting thing is, is like, it's not talked about in the same way that a show like Euphoria is that does kind of the same thing. Now it's, it's not exactly the same. I think Nor people is very much an actual grounded show. Mm-hmm. Um, with good writing and great performances um euphoria has good actors doing their best but you know 
their writing is a little shaky and I think because it's not, I think because Euphoria tries to mix reality and, and surrealism and they've lent a little bit more into surrealism second season and because of the drugs and how stylized it all is, it it's it's not, I think it's, it's not looked at in the same way. I'm not saying it's not respected. I think people respect it enough, I guess, but I don't think it's, it's interesting that the conversations have been different around these two shows that deal with similar things of young people coming of age um, and having explicit content. I think that it's interesting that they're not discussed in the same way. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just, I just think it's fascinating. So, you're, yeah. so you're saying the focus on vibes from Euphoria at the demise of story is what reduce it even because even though these projects have the same subject matter the focus on vibes have diminished just the quality of the story that could be represented is what you're saying yeah okay essentially yeah i think that is what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like yeah that is what happened and also this is based on a book so there is like text to to work from plus sally rooney who wrote the book was very much involved in the show um so it was so it worked it just worked better like I was watching those sex scenes and I didn't feel cringy at all. Like I didn't, I wasn't like, oh. And I know watching just the first episode of Euphoria, I was like, ugh. And I was like, wow, it's just, I think it's just a difference of like how these things were dealt with. Both had intimacy coordinators. So it's not like things were, again, very similar. But I just think that like, I think the the attention to detail, the attention to the characters and their stories were just more, and there's only, it's a two-hander, so it was more, I guess it was more, it was easier to kind of work with that versus like the whole cast of characters that you have on Euphoria, which I dig into all of their different stories. I'm sure that's difficult to do without a writer's room, so. But yeah, so um, it was really good though. Um, I felt all the feels, it's like, the, your lady in red sad girl summer like if you just want to like be depressed but also kind of happy you can watch that show another show that was made from Sally Rooney was her books were was conversations with friends which is the book that I read and I talked about that I don't know last year or something and it was terrible so I don't know what happened like why this show worked and that one didn't it came from the same people Sally Rooney was involved in it and that show conversations was awful and this show was really good so i don't know what happened but i i'm sure most people have seen this because during lockdown this was a show that a lot of people gra gravitated towards so i don't have to tell anyone to really watch it i'm just saying i was late to the party i watched it and i thought it was good so this so normal people is set before conversation with friends they're not it's not a series mm -hmm. so it's not like one is set before it's just that i think conversations with friends was the first book she wrote mm -hmm. and then i think she wrote normal people if i got that right i don't know um so but i think maybe this book was easier to adapt into a screenplay into a show it's more straightforward i think conversations with friends is a lot there's a lot that you can do with it, and it's also not, the characters aren't as sympathetic. Mm. So, it's, um, you know, maybe it was just a, a, a 
I wonder if they kind of made it a sequel, kind of like Bridgerton does with their stuff. Maybe it would have eased the the transition or whatever. I don't know. I feel like the people who watched the show were big fans of the book. And because the books are two separate things, I don't think that it was like a... It wasn't like a, oh, we want a continuation of this kind of story. Like, I think the people who watched it knew what they were getting from both or what they were should be expecting from both books. I just don't think that the execution worked on the conversation show. I don't think it worked at all. It was just like... Because a lot of it is internal do- dialogue. You know, it's people's thoughts. So it's so it's difficult to translate that. Um, but you can. You, there's a way to do it because they did it with this one. I just don't know what happened with that show. I don't. I'm not. I don't know what happened with it. It was bad. <laughs> I don't have the answer. It was just bad. Normal people is good though. So there you go. All right. We hope that you're taking care of yourselves and you're having a great week. And make sure to check out all of our social media and support us if you can. And we will see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye.